Welcome to Reconciling Grace, a program where church leaders discuss various topics from the Bible. During the discussions, there may or may not always be agreement from every panel member on every point, but there is full agreement on the fact that the way to God the Father is through the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Reconciling Grace. This is Pete Vecchi, one of the associate pastors at West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene. Joining me today is Mick Wells. Mick is one of the co-hosts of the Cross Connection radio program. He has been with Wells of Salvation Ministries since 1980. Also with us today is Vicki Cundiff. Vicki is one of the associate pastors at Countryside Church of the Nazarene in Lebanon, Ohio. And our final guest on the panel today, he's not the final necessarily, he's just the last one I'm introducing, is Steve Wilson. Steve is a graduate with a master's degree from United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. He is a Christian author. He is a video game programmer. He is a jack-of-all-trades in many ways. And I um, introduced Steve last because Steve is going to be the one kind of leading the discussion today. The topic that we're going to be focusing on today is Jesus's hyperbole. So Steve, why don't you uh, kind of take us where you'd like us to go today? Sure. So we're going to play a little game today called What Did Jesus Mean When He Said What He Said? And we're going to look at this through the lens of Scripture is true. Second uh, Timothy verse 316 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, the primary point there being it's God-breathed. Scripture is true. And hopefully uh, most people listening today uh, accept that. And they might even accept it in the, in the sense of it is inerrant. It's infallible. It's no mistakes in scripture. We can discuss that, but the idea today is even though we accept Scripture is true, sometimes it's really hard to understand. So we're going to look at some Scripture verses uh, specifically from Jesus, and we're going to look at some different ways of interpreting them. First one is Matthew 13, 31 to 32. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it was the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now this is one of those verses that people who uh, deny that Scripture is infallible, that it's inerrant, that it's true in all regards, they'll point to this saying of Jesus and say, well, Scripture can't be right in everything because Jesus was wrong. A mustard seed is not the smallest of all the seeds you can plant. So if we're going along the lines of, well, actually, Scripture is true, how can we interpret this verse? Well, we did say here that it's like a mustard seed. Uh, so it's a representation to explain a certain aspect of the kingdom of God of a point that he wanted to make. And maybe it's hyperbole. Maybe it's not necessarily the smallest, but in comparison, mm -hmm. it's the smallest to a lot of the other seeds that other people may have been familiar with at that time. Mm 
You know, uh, I was thinking, trying to put myself in the place of a, a follower of Jesus in Bible times, and Jesus said the kingdom of, of heaven is like this or that in various places in the Bible. But like a mustard seed, I, I've got to confess that I wouldn't exactly know how to react to that right off the bat. And I think that um, anyone who reads or hears the word of, of Jesus, such as happened here in Bible times, is immediately faced with, is he speaking literally or is he speaking figuratively, a figure of speech, or in, in hyperbole? And I, I guess if I were in Bible times, I would be a little confused right off the bat. But I would certainly uh, need to pursue the challenge of deciding whether this is literal or whether it is uh, over-exaggerated, if you will, to, to make a point. And... Uh, I'm not sure I can relate to this personally because I don't even know what mustard seeds look like. I didn't know they grew into trees. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I don't know if I've ever seen a mustard seed. Yeah. So maybe the other thing that I can think of here, Steve, is the fact that kind of along what, what Mick was saying, I didn't know they grew into trees other than you know having read this in the Bible. I'm not familiar with a mustard seed or the, what the plant looks like, but... The general idea is there that it is a very small seed, yet it grows into such a big plant that birds can perch in it. Now, I assume birds can perch in it because Jesus said it. Again, I've never seen a mustard plant that I know of, but uh, the idea being is the mustard seed is small, but it can produce a very big thing. Right, so maybe the point is not the mustard seed is the smallest and the mustard tree is the largest in the garden. Maybe it's just showing this is what happens in the kingdom of God. It starts small and it gets big. And maybe the correct way to interpret it is not to look at and scrutinize um, those exact comparisons, but the idea behind the comparisons. Let's uh, go ahead and look at another one. Matthew 7, 3. Okay, the New International Version says it this way. Uh, Jesus is speaking, and he asks, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And just before going on here, I looked up the Holman Christian Standard Version, and it uh, doesn't talk about the plank in your own eye. It talks about the log in your own eye. So it could be a plank or it could be a log. Okay. So, again... It sounds like Jesus is speaking incorrectly. No one goes around with a plank in their eye or a log in their eye. So what did he mean? He's comparing. He's comparing right there. Obviously, I think that the, uh, the things he's comparing there are people who judge others. You're judging another person because they have this small sin in their life or this small issue in their lives, while all the time you have this major issue in your life that you're not paying attention to. He's trying to get people not to judge others in this particular passage. I think that this, of, of, of many verses that we might say are uh, involve hyperbole, this one's obvious to me as a reader and a follower of Jesus, because I can't even picture somebody going around with a plank in their eye, so I know that he's using hyperbole here. 
and I get the message before I point out a problem with somebody else, I've probably got something a lot worse wrong with me that I need to deal with. And, you know, before we move on with this, one of the things that I started thinking about, and this is based on a previous episode where I talked about um, not everybody having certain gifts, like when I was talking about people were illiterate and we'd be talking about them needing to read the Bible. Maybe not everybody is an English major. Steve, would you explain to us what hyperbole is? Hyperbole is exaggeration. It's a, like Mick said, it's a figure of speech uh, meant to make a point. Not to be taken literally, but to give you a, a word picture of what's going on. Okay, so getting back to that plank, as you know, I think we were all talking about, I don't think anybody here has seen anybody with a plank or a log sticking out of their eye running around. Vicki, were you about to say something about that? Yeah, the previous uh, two verses to that, and, on, and really often when Jesus used hyperbole, he had already stated what he meant, and then he'd bring it home in this great exaggeration mm. by using hyperbole. Good. And so he'd already told them not to judge, or you'd be judged in the same manner that you're judging someone else. And then he uses hyperbole to bring attention to this fact. Uh, you know, you can have a speck of sawdust in your eye, and they can understand that, but you certainly can't have a big log in your eye. And so I think he was just bringing home the point so, in a very right, good way. Right. So again, the point is not to be taken absolutely literally, mm-hmm. but even though we don't take it literally, that doesn't mean it's not true. So we, we, we're not supposed to only not judge people if, if, if there's not a literal log in our eye. Is that what you're saying? We're supposed to understand this as exaggeration, as hyperbole. Right. Let's look at the next one. Matthew 6, 3. The word tells us, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Can anyone do that? Can anyone hide what they're doing with their right hand from their left hand? My hands don't have brains. Right? (laughs) I think that the point being made here is kind of clarified three verses later. Matthew 6, 6 says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The, the whole point being that the Lord seems to put a premium on things that aren't broadcast on a street corner like a Pharisee would do. That if we're doing these things for the Lord, he sees it. There's, no nece- there's nothing necessary Uh, in terms of going out and broadcasting that you're giving to the needy or that you're praying on a street corner or something like that. Uh, He he seems to reward what's done in secret. Yes, Mick, I agree. And I I think he's trying to teach humility in these scriptures about praying and giving, um, that we are supposed to do these things humbly and giving glory and praise to God and not trying to accept glory and praise for ourselves. Right. It's almost like I don't even need to acknowledge it to myself. I don't need to dwell on it. As soon as I do it, I should basically forget about it, not let my right hand know what my left hand is doing. Right. Forget all about it. Let it be done. Next one is Matthew 23, 24. It says, You blind guides, speaking to the Pharisees, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Now that would be a feat, wouldn't it? I don't know why I don't know why she swallowed that fly. I guess she'll die. That reminds me of that song where yeah. <laughs> it ends with I know an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. 
So Jesus says, you Pharisees strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. What does he mean? I think the paraphrase of that uh, tells us to, uh, or is saying he's accusing them of playing, paying too close attention to little things and neglecting the more important things. And I was also uh, interested too that he, he put a camel in another similar one uh, that might involve hyperbole about easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that kind of thing. But uh, we obviously come against these kinds of scriptures where we have to paraphrase them in our mind to understand the true meaning. And I think that people in that culture may have understood some things differently than than what we do. And um, right now, I think it's about time for us to take our sponsor's break, and then uh, we'll come right back to this idea of hyperbole after we get back from the break. And we're back with Reconciling Grace. Today's topic we're talking about is Jesus's hyperboles. And Steve Wilson has been leading this discussion. And we had just been talking about the passage where Jesus talked about straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And Vicki, I think you had something that you wanted to add to what we were just saying. Uh, yeah, at the beginning of that chapter in chapter 23, um, Jesus was speaking to the crowd and the disciples and um, he was really warning them of the religious leaders. And he, he had seven woes, and I think this was the fourth one, if I'm remembering it correctly. But um, they actually would uh, strain their drink in case a gnat had gotten into that. So it was something that they actually did, um, but they certainly wasn't going to swallow a camel, which is the hyperbole, of course. Uh, but what he was actually meaning here in his, in his point that he was trying to make is that they paid attention to some things of the law and maybe some of the smaller things of the law and was rejecting the larger and the more important things. For instance, love and mercy and justice in how they were treating other people and also in their relationships with God. And so I think that he was really bringing home this point. You're worried about straining the gnat because it was actually ceremonially unclean in the law of Moses if they would have swallowed that gnat. And so they want to make sure that they, they strain it so they want to make sure they don't swallow this gnat. So they want to stay uh, clean of the law in some aspects, but yet their hearts were hard and, and, and unloving. And that was the most important thing that they needed. If I might just take off on that one time, I heard a Sunday school uh, teacher say this, and it has been so meaningful to me for the rest of my life since then, that the the Jewish religious leaders who were bringing Jesus before Pilate would not enter Pilate's home or palace because they didn't want to defile themselves on the uh, day of celebration, on the feast day. So they kept the religious uh, ceremony, but they killed the Savior. Right. I think that goes right along with what yes, you're saying about does. straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Right. Okay, so let's look at Matthew 4.39 as our next example. Okay, I have this one from the New International Version. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, meaning Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Everything I ever did. Wow, that must have been a long conversation <laughs> because that woman did a lot. Right? We're talking about the woman at the well. 
a woman who had how many husbands? It's seven. Seven, I think. Something like that. I thought it was five. I, yeah, I think five. it's five. Well, so, might as well might as well have been seven. Still a lot. Right? A lot. Because the man That's that she the man that she was living with wasn't her husband. Wasn't even her husband, right? Mm-hmm. So this woman goes to the crowd after she is obviously putting her faith in Jesus, and she says, "Come, come, listen to this guy. He told me everything I ever did." What did, did you What did you do yesterday? You know. Yeah. Did he really tell her everything she ever did? I think it. She. He told her such intimate things about herself that in her heart it felt like he really knows me. And in her mind, he told me everything I ever did because that's what she was feeling like. Mm-hmm. didn't actually happen that way. I think that's the point. Okay. So again, we have that example of it's true. What the Scripture says is true mm-hmm. as long as we look at it with the right perspective and understand that sometimes things are not literal. They're meant to be taken figuratively. They're meant to be taken as hyperbole. And, you know, hyperbole, I know we'll get back to this, but one of the things that that has been interesting to me is something that goes back, again, in my spiritual walk many years. It's probably over 30 years, probably close to 35 years ago, where I read a book, and this was a momentous occasion for me because back then I hated to read. But I was reading a book, and it was talking about two different um, Christians who just could not seem to get along. They were both in ministry of some type or another, but it just seemed like it was it was oil and water when they met. And in this book, this guy said that, that I think he said it was the Holy Spirit, gave him this questionnaire, and it started asking questions about what was that person's perception of Jesus. And, you know, things like, did Jesus ever smell bad? Did Jesus ever um, raise his voice? Some people think, no, those things didn't happen. And he said, both of us were trying to be like Jesus— but our perception of Jesus was different. And this is where I think that a lot of this idea of the hyperbole comes in because we have to understand it in that context. Why do we think that Jesus would never use a figure of speech? Some people think Jesus would never use a figure of speech or something like hyperbole. And I think this is where we're kind of going today, right, Steve? Right. It's also the idea of how can I trust Scripture when sometimes doesn't read the way I want it to read or read the way I expect it to read. Let's look at Matthew 5.29. And this is one that uh, got one person in particular in a lot of trouble. Mm. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay, now I'm going to tell a story on a man named Origen. He was a, a very famous uh, teacher in the early church. He was a, a bishop even. And he thought, you know, I have a real problem with lust. And the Bible says it's better to lose one part of my body than to go into hell. So to get rid of this temptation, I'm going to get rid of that member of my body. He did it. He castrated himself. And then the church came back and said, uh, origin, that's not really what that means. <laughs> and he actually lost his, uh, his position as a bishop uh, because of this verse. So if Jesus doesn't actually mean us to take our eyes out, if we find ourselves uh, wanting to look at things that we shouldn't, or cut off our hand if we're uh, tempted to, to take things or touch things that we shouldn't, 
What does he mean by this? I think we have this concept of some people take literal interpretation of the Bible to the bank. In fact, you've probably heard the old cliche where people will say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. (laughs) And so I I was reading somebody talking about this very verse um, online, and this is the guy's testimony, and it's the same as you just described. He said, I met a Christian who actually tried to pluck out his right eye because he had a lust problem. Now, unless people can recognize the ways that uh, teachings were intended or communicated may take that literally, and it goes into other areas too. Um, And I won't go down the rabbit trail, but the Word of Faith movement might grab on to some verse and make a doctrine out of it, make it very literal, and have people claiming all kinds of things that God never intended to follow through with. But um, I've pondered this myself. But again, I go back to we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit really want us to do something this wild? And, um, but I'm afraid that a lot of people out there who tend to take the Bible quite literally would give it serious consideration, just like the uh, early church father. Right. But actually what he was doing was using an extreme exaggeration to make the point of the seriousness of sin. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And one of the things that I can think of here, too, is if we look at this uh, in a little bit different light, it could be that Jesus was trying to say to these guys, look, you've been trying to attain godliness on your own. If you want to attain godliness on your own, this is how committed you've got to be. And he might have been stating it because it was so ridiculous, the idea being, You just need to either trust in yourselves, and this is how much you need to trust in yourselves to be able to go this far to be perfect, or you can trust in me. Mm. Good point. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so let's go to Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Uh, I like this particular passage because I've kind of tracked my, uh, I have a problem son, and I, I can relate to this. The word tells us, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And uh, I was going to write a little article or a poem and entitle it 491 because I've been through such struggles with a a drug-addicted son who's stolen from me and lied to me. I think he's reached at least 490, so I can't take this literally. I have to remind myself what the hyperbole is, and that is that Jesus would have us have no limits upon forgiving others uh, who ask for forgiveness of us. Because I think that's a great uh, point there, making something that you said you, you may have even... Um, inadvertently glossed over this. This particular version says 77 times. There are some of the manuscripts that say it should be interpreted 70 times seven times, which would be 490, which is what you were talking about, 491. Yeah, that's the NIV, and uh, I have seen that footnote. Right, and others will say 70 times 70. So um, 
you know, that's the 4,900 if my math is correct. So which which literal interpretation is it? 77, <laughs> 4,900, or 490? Right. So an interesting thing about this is um, in the Old Testament, a uh, man named Lamech said he was a descendant of Cain. And he said, if Cain is avenged seven times over, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. Mm. And, and basically he was saying, I'm going to take revenge on my enemies. And Jesus said, no, you're, you're going to forgive your enemies 77 times. As many times as you want to take revenge, you forgive instead. And, and again, right, that, that big number, whatever it is, 77, 490, 4900, whatever it is, Jesus said, let's make this big number so you understand there's not really a limit. Right. So maybe in that um, context, in that culture, now you were talking about Lamech and, you know, using that. Jesus may have been referring to that very uh, situation, um, but it could be like you and I saying, you don't forgive your brother once, you forgive him a million times. Right. It's a, it's a figure of speech. You know, we, we use that number and we don't literally mean a million. Now, this next verse is one that I've personally had a, a tough time understanding. Mark 11, 22 to 24 says, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So he takes this, this example, throw, throw a mountain in the sea with your faith, and then relates it to prayer. Whatever you ask for in prayer will be done. Now does Jesus mean this literally, that we should have so much faith that we can actually say to a mountain, jump in the sea, or is this another example of hyperbole? That's a hard one as I, as I see it. First of all, if you're gonna ask for something big from the Lord, I would think the Holy Spirit would impress upon you that it it's something that would further the cause and kingdom of God. And to say to a mountain, it almost sounds frivolous to say, I don't like that mountain there. Lord, throw it into the sea. And the other thing is, is faith in God, uh, which says have faith in God. I don't even know how to quantify faith. I know that people who haven't received healing in services have been accused of not having enough faith. Well, how do you measure it? In what increments and so forth? I do believe that faith uh, has a very important role in the Christian life, but I am, tr I am also relating to what you're saying. I don't know quite what to think of this. I would say my faith would tell me that I need to be praying in God's will. Mm -hmm. Is this God's will that this mountain is removed? Uh, is it a literal mountain? Is it a mountain? As I heard a uh, Christian songwriter say one time, I can say to this mountain of jealousy, be taken up and cast into the sea. I think the, what he's trying to say here as far as the mountain goes is great obstacles. Uh, will be removed in our lives through faith and not doubting. And, of course, like you said, you have to pray in faith and in mm -hmm. uh, God and asking for his will. doesn't mean we're going to get everything. But. That's good. So I think the danger with, with uh, saying everything is hyperbole when we don't understand it is maybe it's not, right? Um, there, certainly we can interpret this as hyper hyperbole as figures of speeches. 
symbolic. Um, but again, we need to be careful that we're not writing everything off that we don't understand as hyperbole. So maybe we can say that the Bible, of course, we are all saying that the Bible is true, but maybe we don't always know for sure if it is hyperbole or if it's literal, and sometimes it may be one, sometimes it may be another, and that's why we need to keep on studying. Right. Well, I'd like to keep on going. We've got about 20 seconds here, so I think that uh, it's going to be time to wrap up. So for Steve Wilson, Mick Wells, Vicki Cundiff, I'm Pete Vecchi. This has been Reconciling Grace. Lord willing, we'll see you again next time. May God bless you. This has been Reconciling Grace. Join us again next time as our panel discusses biblical truths centered around the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ.